Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In our short form interview series, Catching Up With, this time it is with our friend Tony Perella. Tony, former telecommunications executive, very successful in the business world, around 2010 decided, you know, I want to sample this vintage racing thing. Loved it, fell in love with it, ended up buying the SVRA vintage series, which has gone from a high reputation, but not exceptional awareness to a continued high reputation and significant awareness under his ownership and steerage. And the conversation here is not so much about the SVRA. It's about the other racing property that he has taken a controlling interest in. That is the Trans Am series. And as you'll hear in our conversation, this isn't hard hitting stuff. This is just me speaking with someone who I appreciate for reviving a series that I grew up on, that I loved and holds a really dear place in my little heart. What comes to mind with the Trans Am series as it enters 2020 is how it really is poised to return to the place where it once held. I don't think it's going to happen this year. I'm not even sure if it's going to happen next, but I can see that it is on a path where it can be spoken of next to IMSA in the series formerly known as World Challenge, maybe even moving ahead World Challenge in terms of popularity, recognition. There's something so unique about Trans Am that we don't get anywhere else. And that is in a world of homologated race cars, from your prototypes to your GT cars, GT3, GT4, GT Le Mans, LMP2, DPIs, all of these cars, the way the world has gone racing today with sports cars, can't touch them. Homologated, every aspect of the car is locked into some form of rule or specification. Can't monkey with them. DPI's a little bit on the engine side, GTLM a little bit on the engine side, but not so much. Really, we're at a place where the cars are more or less untouchable, and that just goes against everything I know. That's why I love Trans Am. These are hand-built, hand-created, fabricated by real people, not coming off of production lines, not being pulled out of molds. This is metal being cut, tube frame silhouette, crazy, crazy vehicles, cartoonish looks. When I say fire spitting, flame breathing, it's true. It's not just hype. These screaming V8 engines, big slick tires. Yeah, they've got wings. They're not that big. Yeah, they've got splitters. They don't do a lot. These aren't aerodynamic creatures. There's no traction control. There's no ABS. There's no driver aids, nothing. There's no driver ratings. <laughs> There's no BOP. It is just pure, crazy, raw, unadulterated racing. And that's the Trans Am series that I grew up on when I first learned and saw, learned about them and saw them in the late 70s. Throughout the 80s was just transfixed by them. And in the 90s as well, even the 2000s fell on hard times, came back kind of well below the radar. And with Tony and John Claggett and the other good people who were trying to make Trans Am 
what it once was, we now have a series that is just so different than anything else we find in sports car racing. It's unadulterated, it's pure, just race, hardcore, beat the living crap out of each other and celebrate it. Not trying to do anything else. And I love that and I hope you'll love that too. And that's really the heart of the conversation here. Other thing too, which you'll hear about, and it just blows me away, is the cost. (laughs) I don't understand why every IndyCar team, hell, I don't understand why every IMSA team doesn't have a Trans Am team. These things cost nothing. Uh, Anyways, so that's our conversation here with Tony Perella. May or may not know him. I hope you get to know him better here. And yeah, Roger Penske, he's really been spoken about the most of late for what he's done with purchasing IndyCar and IMS, trying to make it better, get it back to the glory days. I'll just tell you, you know, speaking truthfully, Tony's a couple years ahead of RP in that regard, trying to make the SVRA a thing, and now even more really trying to make Trans Am what it once was in terms of popularity. So that's our conversation here. It's not super long. I hope you'll come along with me, though, in rooting for Trans Am as the the rogue the outlaw series that to me uh, should be making imsa should be making world challenge seriously concerned in the years ahead so let's get going with tony all brought to you by cooper tires and the justice brothers on the marshall pro podcast tony perella i love what i'm seeing with your mighty fine racing series Trans Am. Where are you hoping to take it? No, it's a very general opening question, but I see big things for it, but I don't know what your three-year, five-year, ten-year mindset is like. Well, I, first of all, thanks for having me on and, and being and a part of what you're doing for the sport. But to answer your question, uh, the first step was really to stabilize it. When, when I bought into Trans Am as, as part of SVRA or with SVRA, it was to try to reinvent a model that was different than everybody else in, in racing. If you think about it, whether it's IndyCar, F1, NASCAR, any of the major tier one uh, racing organizations, they all have one thing in common, and that's manufacturer support at the automotive maker level. And Trans Am did has enjoyed that in its history, but in recent years, it certainly hasn't had that. So I saw an opportunity with the schedule and scale of SVRA to be a part of Trans Am. I could change the model that we we could not only thrive and prosper, but we could do it without them. Now, there's no question I'd love to have them involved, but I could put a platform underneath Trans Am that would make it stable and grow uh, from what it was when I first got involved. But to answer your question directly, where does where do I think we can go? You know, I think at Trans Am in 1969 at Watkins Glen when I saw my first race and Parnelli Jones and and Mark Donahue and Roger Penske era. That to me is what Trans Am was in its heyday. There's been other cycles that it was really booming. But that's what I think of as a, you know, a 60-year-old race fan. That's what I think of. I want to surpass that. I want Trans Am 
to when they reference Trans Am, I want it to be in what no longer saying that's like the glory days. It is the glory days. And that's, we're not, we're not even close to that yet, but I really think we've laid the foundation to evolve to the glory days of Trans Am. What do you see Tony as the first, second, third steps to get there? I've been very direct in telling folks that I think with the buy-in of one manufacturer, maybe two, but at least one to legitimize the value of the series, yeah, hopefully then attract other manufacturers as well. It seems to me that with the buy-in from a name the brand, but probably some manufacturer that puts together a large vehicle that makes a lot of power, a supercar-ish type thing, halo-type car, this series could do pretty amazing business and I think win a lot of hearts and minds that have been, <laughs> I don't know if I should say, uh, under attack or uh, really just held back by this modern era of BOP and homologated cars and just all kinds of things that have nothing to do with sounds and sights and flame spitting madness and just glory and love and passion all the technical nonsense that ne- that just brings nobody to the sport what do you see is it getting manufactured buy-in are there other mechanisms that you think could help trans am explode back to what it was uh, in few previous iterations yeah i think i have several we have several initiatives that i think will allow us to, to use your term, explode. And, and it's certainly the manufacturers bring resources. That's the biggest thing they bring. They bring a checkbook. And that checkbook enables us to invest in the business faster than you can than when you don't have that checkbook. However, the first, the first things that I think make Trans Am position to explode there's several things we did. Number one, you look at our schedule. We're racing in the tier one racetracks around the United States. I don't know of a track that is considered top drawer that Trans Am hasn't raced at or isn't racing at currently. And, you know, to be able to fund that without manufacturer support in its own right is a huge initiative. Then you look at the different elements within Trans Am. You take the TA group. It's the only series or class that I can think of where creative engineering, racing engineering is encouraged, supported, and condoned because the rule book, it's anything but spec racing. It's, this is where you go when you want to invent the best mousetrap and really have a fire-breathing dragon out on the track. You go to TA. We don't, we don't put them in a box and say, it's got to look like this. And everybody looks the same. We pretty much turned them loose with the rule book. There's some boundaries, but they're, I'll tell you, it's a pretty, pretty clean sheet of paper. If you want to build a race car. Mm. And I think that's, I think that's still attractive to a certain segment of a racing community. The second place that we're really different is at the opposite end of that spectrum is the TA2 class where your, your cost of entry has got to be the lowest 
to you can buy a brand new car in the wrapper for about $125,000 and go racing and race. You have a car that's capable of winning. Um, so when you think about that cost level versus some of the other professional race series in America, this uh, certainly at the cost standpoint, it's, it's very economical. Our approach to entries, you know, there's series out there to charge five, eight, ten thousand dollar entry fees. We're charging two thousand dollar entry fee. So we're making it you're racing at the best racetracks in the country and you have the lowest professional entry fee. And then we're starting to put on some other trimmings in the weekend to make it you know, shorten the cycle where they come in and get out. We have add, you know, they're the lunchtime show. All of the things that are attractive to a, a professional racer at, the, at that end of the food chain, we're making it where it's pretty hard not to take a look at us. I think all of those things have laid a foundation, but those are all directed. All of those initiatives are directed at the racer. But what we haven't talked about is the initiatives for the fans. And in this day and age, uh, I think you have to approach marketing to spectators. You have to make it feel different. I made an announcement at our Daytona Urine Banquet. We're going to do live streaming at all the SVRA Trans Am joint events this year, in 2020. Now, you'd say, well, uh, so what? That's a, not a big deal. It is a big deal. When you consider, again, we're doing it out of the register that's funding that, and we're going to do it with high quality. But we're also looking at bringing a technology in with our spectator app that not only will they get real-time scoring, but we want to be able to have them ride with the driver of choice on their phone. So we're, we're looking at how do we make that work through the streaming. So the younger generation who still can relate to a Camaro or a Mustang or a Corvette, they'll have a fan that, you know, they're a fan of a specific driver. They can press on their app and they're going to ride with their driver in the race. I think that type of fan experience is where we want to go. And I think that type of technology is within our grasp over the next year or two. And I'm going to do everything I can to make that a reality. And I think that coupled with, frankly, the support we get from Racer that, we, you know, I think our coverage is, we're becoming relevant again. And I think, you know, that's why I said, I think the glory days are ahead of us. I, I, I don't think I'm delusional when I say that. I really think we laid the proper foundation with some well thought out execution to make this bigger and better than it's ever been. Let's talk about two other aspects, Tony, that curious to learn about. Speak about the cost to buy a TA, TA2 level, top tierish level Trans Am car. What are annual budgets? Uh, and I realize that that's, you know, it's like asking how long is a piece of string. There's no definitive yeah. answer. But if we're talking, uh, you, when you're talking with someone that says, hey, I'm interested in coming in. Obviously, after buying a car, assuming they have a truck and transporter and crew, you know, assuming the infrastructure is there, what's an annual budget projection? So I think that might be an area, too, that surprises folks. Yeah, I, th I think you can, you know, there's guys that will spend probably uh, 
those, there's no there's no end to what they can spend. But I think the reality is, a guy can come in and hire a the top tier race shops that run TA2. We'll, we'll focus on TA2 for a second. Uh, you know, the reality is, you can come in at a weekend, rent a car from one of the top teams. Some of them rent the cars for twenty thousand dollars. You don't even buy the car; you rent it for that weekend, and you're running up front if you have the skill set to do that. I think a typical PA2 budget is probably around a quarter of a million dollars for the year. If I had a guess, I don't know exact. Some <laughs> some guys are doing it. So, you know, when you think about that level and where they're racing, and now I'm going to give them tape delay TV and streaming, and they're going to, you know, they're going to run a hundred mile feature. Uh, for that kind of money, I, I don't want to say that that's insignificant, but that's, that's frankly anybody who either comes from any kind of money or has the ability to raise a little bit of sponsorship, we can get them home. And then we, we, we launched our speed tour magazine. So we offer the race teams uh, exposure in the magazine that they can help raise sponsorship. I think, I think we're doing as much for the racer to fund their deal as any series in the, in the country right now. I'm probably more than most. Uh, just again, it's just ridiculous to me that you have 850 horsepower, high revving V8, snarling sounds, crazy bodywork, uh, wide tires, oversteer galore. I mean, it's just, it does take me back absolutely to the Trans Am that I grew up on in the 1980s. And to think that that can be done for one tenth of a IMSA GTD budget is just, it's silly. Uh, it's just silly. And, and I think, and I'm not, you know, this is not active promotion of Trans Am. It's just as a, somebody who's loved it his entire life, it's just been crazy to speak with friends who've raced in it and tell me about how little it costs. You look at the events that you go to, the tracks, it's pretty much a mirror of the IMSA calendar. If we're, you know, or a world challenge calendar of, of all the venues that you go to, just something where crazy money is not involved. And that's where I think, I think you're in a place where Trans Am in a couple of years could be a serious threat to those who are currently struggling to put together a budget to race in highly controlled series where maybe the the money to go and play per weekend is about the same to do an entire season in Trans Am. But there's maybe the one thing that an IMSA has say that Trans Am doesn't. Maybe you can speak about this. IMSA being the headliner everywhere that it goes, it has a couple of events during the year where it partners with IndyCar. It's on a couple of bills throughout the year where outside of its traditional rounds, 24 hours of Daytona, 12 hours of Sebring, Petit Le Mans. It's not always blessed with big crowds, but it does have a pretty good fan base and it does have some big weekends where it partners with IndyCar and has big fan turnout. What do you think about Trans Am in terms of working with a IndyCar, for example, to try and get itself in front of more people? I don't know, maybe even entice some of those IndyCar team owners to say 250 grand for a year. 
uh, hell, we'll put together a team. I bet we could make money doing this and have fun as well. But do you think that yep. might be the thing that brings you, the series more to the forefront? Oh, a- absolutely. We 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 are always looking for creative ways that are cost effective to raise our exposure. Now, to that point, um, you know, several of the races in 20 are with SVRA. And surprisingly, some of the SVRA events are are drawing pretty substantial crowds because fans are going to see the Trans Am as the headliner and, and, and SVRA in a sense from a fan base standpoint, it certainly doesn't have the recognition. So it's probably more, even though it's an SVRA weekend, but it's also a Trans Am weekend, the Trans Am element of it draws fans probably more than the awareness of that that we get from vintage racing. Having said that, we race uh, Belle Isle, the, the Detroit Grand Prix with IndyCar yep. uh, with, right now with THU. We uh, race at Road America IndyCar. We were racing with NASCAR at Mid-Ohio, but they changed the date, so that one's now a SVRA event. But I think you know, we we are continuing to to look for creative ways. At this point, Trans Am, when I got involved, didn't get paid a sanctioning fee because it didn't have the strength on its own to fund a weekend. I think that will change in the future. I think as we continue to work our plan, I think some of these tracks are going to say, can you separate your show and we'll pay you a sanctioning fee for because we see upside in our gate because you, you've done the things you're doing to reignite the fan base. Um, you know, let's face it. We were trans am was shut down for a couple of years and it's 53 history, 53 year history was shut down for a couple of years. Not that long ago. It came back, came back to the table in 2011. And I started our first deal in 2013 where we ran a race together. And so I think, you know, from where it was then to what it is now, it's incredible growth, but I, we're still, we're still not a household name again yet. People still don't, you know, you can't walk down the street and tap 10 people on the shoulder in New York City, say, hey, what do you think of the new Trans Am Grace cars? Um, they're not going to know what you're talking about. But we will get there. And I think the plan we have in place, you know, frankly, the, the moves we made so far have been all foundation moves. You know, the gate really was a second thought out of necessity, not because we didn't want to promote. We couldn't necessarily pay our way up. Now with the pieces we've put in place with the TA2 and TA cars, what we've done with the, you know, the GT and SGT classes, what we've done with combining it with some of our events with SVRA, with the price points we have, with the rule picker, all the things we've done, our schedule, it was all part of building a foundation. Now having Greenlight TV do tape delay TV coverage between us. Do I think that's the future? No, but it was a way to keep us relevant for a little while, but that same group now is at our races. I can share the expense of live streaming. They're already on the ground film and tape delay TV. So we're going to hit it from two fronts and it's funded some by SVRA and some by Trans Am and we're keeping the entry fees down where it's accessible to a lot of teams. And that combination 
I think is making us relevant again. But we're, Marshall, from where we are, from what we were when I started, it's amazing progress. But I don't even feel like we've gotten to first base yet with, mm-hmm. with the potential. I really see, I'm like going against the, <laughs> everybody's playing defense and we're, we seem to be playing offense right now. And it's fun. It's, it's exciting to, to really look out a few years and see the potential is, is really unlimited. Let's close on this, Tony. So for those who have come to know the Trans Am product as a modern sports car option, maybe don't know its back history so much or weren't around to see it back in the day, but have seen it enough to be interested. They might also not know that it has been partnered with. It's been a, a featured aspect of this pretty cool and different thing you've been doing. That being the SVRA, the vintage racing series that you have and this V rock championship you've created. It's turned the concept of vintage racing on its head a bit here in North America. And I say that as someone who granted, I'm very depressed that some of the cars that compete in the SVRA are cars that I worked on in my youth as a race car mechanic. So to think that those are now vintage cars pisses me off a little bit, but um, (laughs) as someone who's again, just loved motor racing's history, it's cars in particular been going to vintage events for most of my life. uh, Those 10 have tended to be honorings of the past, not a real hardcore racing mindset. Uh, the 13 and 13 rule of contact and just all kinds of things were really, it, it, it's the, the racing, the automotive equivalent of an old timers baseball game. Ah, look, the 70 year old legend, you know, the pitcher from so-and-so is throwing 22 mile an hour heat across the plate kind of thing. You guys have been doing things differently, which I love. You're treating vintage racing as racing you're not encouraging contact, but you, you're really turning this into a event. Come out, see vintage cars, beautiful vintage cars go hard. Also have this vintage race of champions series you've created and you get trans am as well. No one's doing this, man. Tell us about this for those who don't know and where this different angle on vintage racing uh, came to your uh, your beautiful little brain. Well, <laughs> well, it, it, it honestly started. I I did my first vintage race in uh, I think it was 2010 in a nonprofit group down in Texas called Cbar, and I had a 58 Corvette and went racing in little. What I think is traditionally what vintage racing was across the country, with maybe the exception of. Uh, you know, Monterey Historics, uh, the Hawk up in, in Road America and probably the Midi, those were national premier events that somebody would run, we'll say. But everyday vintage racing was done for the most part by nonprofit clubs. And I literally found out that SVRA had a race at Watkins Glen. And with my history as a kid going to races there, I went up and I experienced an SVRA race at Watkins Glen and it it was the light went on in my head. uh, Holy cow. I'm actually racing at Watkins Glen number one, but it really, this could be, this could be a really big deal, but 
they weren't they weren't treating it was really more like a club than a business to be i guess is the best way i would say it and when i when i thought about and i looked around the paddock and the people what what they were racing and the cost of you know for a discretionary racer to be able to spend the money to do that for a what equated to about a ten dollar medal or prize it occurred to me that these are all pretty much financially set people if i took this national and secured the biggest racetracks in the country the following for sponsorship for luxury brands and if i scaled it for race related brands this could be an interesting business and that really was the start of it that was in 10 by 2012 i bought the company that september of, at watkins Glen, and it's really proven true if you step back from the original concept svra only ran at three race tracks in 2012 that was watkins seabreen and mid ohio and you know today we're at 14 different racetracks the sponsorship that we've attracted when i bought the company there was zero gate and there was zero sponsorship zero so here we are seven years later and i can off the top of my head name jaguar land rover net jets marathon coach tire red davis all luxury brands chapard watch all luxury brands and then of course on the race related sunoco simpson bell helmet uh, pirelli hoosier because of our scale hms safety those all came to us either scale or race or luxury brand related and the interesting thing is svra today is a, if you're talking business is over 30 times its annual size that it was in 2012 seven years later that's that's <laughs> that's interesting but what's even more interesting is 100 percent of the revenue for svra came on the backs of the racers in two forms entry fees and it came in the form of license fees. No other revenue came to the table. Now we're 30 times bigger, more than 30 times bigger, but we were small. So I want to set the right expectation. We wasn't much with three races, but we've gone 30 times bigger, but over half our revenue, half comes from sponsorship and gate now. And you know, it's enabled us to now have a program of free entry for a featured market every race this year. So, you know, if as an example, if you got a Mustang, you can drive at Cal Speedway for free at our February race. If you have a historic Trans Am car, you can race for free at Seamarine. And if you have a Volvo, you can race for free at, at Portland. This year at Indianapolis, we did Formula Fords. We had 97 Formula Fords race for free with that program we couldn't have even thought about doing that seven years ago but that's bringing guys to the show who have never raced with us before it's bringing people who've had their cars parked suddenly are getting interest in it you know we we were the first to you know non-professional to race at indianapolis motor speedway when we did our deal the brickyard invitational first year and so all of those things have been a part of our growth. But I think what I'm most proud of is the V-Rock series. You know, it started out when we got the race date at Indy. How do I pay tribute to the, my heroes? How do I how do I do it right? And I met with, I don't know how many former IndyCar drivers saying, what do I do? Do I do something on the oval? How do I do this right? And 
after I don't know, having conversations, it became clear to me, I, I don't need to do something on the oval that's too dangerous, and there's no way for me to, to keep it controlled. So do something on the road course. And we decided I had a huge group, our group six, which is Camaro, Mustangs, and Corvettes from the late 60s, early 70s. Let's put them in their hefty cars, and let's go, let's go attract former indie legends. So I went and signed... You know, Alancer Jr. and and uh, Willie T. and Lynn St. James and Sarah Fisher. And I said, look, come in. Come in for a weekend. I'll pay your expenses. I can't pay you, but the amateur driver will pay an entry fee. We'll have a silent auction. We'll pass the hat at my banquet, and we'll pick a charity that we can do some good in the community that's a 501c3. And you guys come out and have some fun. And that started at Indy. And now here we are seven years later, and we're going to run a four-race series. We'll, be at, uh, we'll start in Atlanta for Hope for Warriors. Then we go to Indy for the Morgan Adams Cancer Foundation. Then we go to VIR. We're doing a scholarship fund for RPM. And we finish with Ecota uh, with the championship. We've added a fourth race, uh, which is also our national championship for vintage racing race. We'll have uh, for the Starkey Hearing Foundation. And we've raised in seven years 900 and I think it's $940,000 wow. so far. So, you know, my goal is to raise several million dollars over the next few years through the V-Rock, but it's been a blast. I mean, can you imagine, I personally, I have only raced in one V-Rock. It was at Indy, and my co-driver was Al Unser. So can you picture being a race fan that I am, and your hero is sitting shotgun in a in a Avis rent-a-car and I'm showing the marks and I'm showing Al Unser where to go on a racetrack at Indianapolis more soon. I mean, it was, I had, I, to this day, I get goosebumps when I talk about it. It was amazing. So, you know, and I got a little Al in the back. So he's saying, no, 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 dad, you need to be over here. He's, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So it's just the experience. We had Johnny Rutherford race with us this year and um, he had a ball. And, wow. and so to, to have those guys, you know, Willie winning his first race at Indy. Oh my God! And do his <laughs> doing a revised version of his shuffle on the roof of a '69 Corvette. The best. Corvette. The uh, best. You know what an amazing thing has happened, and and it was all it was really on a fluke to just try to pay tribute to him. It's really taken on a life of its own, and you know, Davy Jones, Davy Hamilton, some household names, Roberto Guerrero. Bill Elliott, um, Bobby Labonte, Mike Skinner, Todd Bodine, all have raced. I mean, you know, NASCAR's now gotten involved. Uh, Jeff Brabham, so, we, you know, we got long winners. We, it's really a, a who's who of, of racing. And I've had them as old as 78 years old to, you know, that, you know, when I, when I raced with Dale, I think he was 78. And, it was amazing. I mean, what a what an experience for me. But when he got done, he was teared up. He said, you know, he raced with his son all those years later. He hadn't raced in a a real race in over twenty years, and for him, and he did a great job. He kept that car right where he wanted it. We had a ball. Tony, really happy with where your 
wanting to take Trans Am and just the overall weekend package you've created for fans to enjoy. Telling you, man, it wouldn't take much for Trans Am to be back up rivaling IMSA, if not scaring the heck out of IMSA. And I've loved IMSA my entire life, so it's not as if I'm wanting to see two warring factions again. If anything, I'd love to see Trans Am back where it belongs, which is high in everyone's register. It's just an amazing, unique series. There is nothing like it. Tube frame, just crazy vehicles, and you've added in uh, production-based side as well. Uh, previous homologation spec GT3 cars are eligible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, there's there's a formula here. There's a formula here that says we're not going to comply to what everyone else is doing in sports car racing, and there seems to be a lot of folks responding to it, a lot of traction being gained. So I just want to go back to where I was in the 80s <laughs> and know that uh, Trans Am was going to be just as big of a draw as IMSA or whatever else and see a lot of smiling faces. So look forward to what you have in store for the future here, my friend, and can't wait to get to more Trans Am rounds. Well, Marshall, you know you're welcome anytime. We'd love to have you. Uh, we'll, we'll be out. We'll be out on the West Coast. It'd be awesome to have you come and uh, join us. In, but uh, I appreciate you taking the time with me. I, I listened to your uh, podcast with Little Al a few months ago, and I caught Willie's there a few weeks ago. And <laughs> I think we we both share uh, our love for those two guys. And uh, it's just uh, I appreciate you taking the time with me today. I will. Uh, We'll catch up soon.